Welcome to I Love You, But I Hate Your Politics. I'm Dr. Jeannie Safer. This is the last episode of the first season of this show. In the previous shows, we've met all sorts of people who had a profound political disagreement with a loved one, but managed to work it out. I've talked about my own relationship often on these episodes. It's a huge reason why I started doing this show in the first place, and why I wrote the book about it. I thought it would be only appropriate to turn the tables a little bit and share more about my own experience. My guest this week is my husband, Rick Brookhiser. Finally, I've got the opportunity to ask this guy some questions that I've always wanted to ask, but that somehow haven't been addressed in all the times we've been interviewed about our unusual marriage. When we wed in 1980, the percentage of couples like us was 20%. Now it's down to 9% and declining steeply. We're a vanishing breed. At the moment, we're enjoying a rare consensus on politics since we both oppose Donald Trump. It's a delicious experience to be on the same page about something after all these years. I've always thought that the fact that we met in a singing group and a one-of-a-kind singing group that performs Renaissance religious music for free on the streets of New York has a lot to say about why we've gotten along for all these years despite the radical political differences that could have done us in. We have something major in common that's more fundamental to us than politics. Rick, before we met, did you ever imagine yourself being married to a bleeding heart liberal like me? Well, I don't know about married, but I had <laughs> uh, I had had girlfriends I disagreed with. I had one who was much further away from me than you. Uh, the year before we met, uh, she tried to register to vote for the first time as a communist, and then. What that meant was that the world that I grew up in, not my home life, because my parents were very conservative, but uh, college. You know, I went to Yale, Ivy League school, and that was a liberal institution. Most of the people there were politically liberal and uh, expressed their views, weren't shy about it. So I was used to thinking of myself as being in a minority and that most of the people I would just encounter were likely to be to my left. Boy, the tables have turned, haven't they? Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if they've reversed entirely, but, but there's certainly uh, more parity maybe than there was. Well, then. you know, one of the things that this makes me think of is that now I can have empathy for what it's like to be in a minority of that sort because, you know, the world that I grew up in was virtually completely liberal. The only Republican that I knew growing up was my father. Uh, and the notion of National Review and, and, and William F. Buckley, that was just like the John Birch Society to me. I mean, that was so fanatic and insane. So uh, it, was, it was sobering and enlightening, I think, to meet you and also to meet your colleagues at National Review. Well, right. What did it feel like when you realized that you were attracted to a hard-shell conservative? <laughs> well... I really wasn't so worried about you being a conservative, to put it mildly. Um, my first thought was this was, what was this, 1977, mm -hmm. when um, I was already a member of the Renaissance Street Singers and, and you joined. And the first thing I noticed was that you had a wonderful singing voice. And the second was that you had glorious blue eyes. 
and you seem smart, and you seem funny. And so I asked you at some point what you did for a living. And you said you were a writer. And I thought, oh, this is pretty good, right? <laughs> and then you said, and I said, then the next thing I said was, um, um, well, who do you work for? Or, or what do you write? Or something like that. And you said, I'm, I think you were senior editor of National Review at that point, That's weren't you? Right. Yeah. I'm senior editor of National Review, Bill Buckley's magazine. And I thought to myself, oh my God. The Bill trap door opened. Buckley. But then I thought, well, at least he's a writer. <laughs> so I, I, in some way, it certainly didn't, it didn't, spell the end before the beginning to me at all. Okay. No. Well, but clearly maybe that not. Was, here maybe we that, are. Right, here we are. But, but maybe that was also ignorance. I mean, I don't think I had any idea what I was getting into. Okay. Well, so what, uh, what did that seem to you as you got to know me better, as you got to know my colleagues better? I mean, it wasn't just me. You met, you met oh, everybody no. at the magazine. I think it's been an ongoing revelation you know, we think of the other side, at least at least liberals think of the other side, as the Antichrist. I mean, you could have nothing in common with these people. They're fanatics. They're lunatics. You know, they want to tear down everything that you hold dear. And that what I found is that I was welcomed very graciously. I, little did I think that, that uh, one day I'd be sitting next to William F. Buckley on his 80th birthday. And that um, and then at our wedding, one of the people who was the biggest supporters for um, the House on american Activities Committee in McCarthy, would give a reading, and the person who walked me down the aisle would be one of the first people who was removed from his tenured position because of McCarthy. So, right. So this really started, you know, these two worlds were kind of coming together. Right. So, so it was weird, you know, and people, I think the strangest thing wasn't the actual experience. It was how people reacted. I mean, I don't know. I don't think, and it says something about your world, that... The people on your side will say, what are you doing with a liberal, or how could you do that? But I got it constantly. I got the it constantly. The reverse of that. Oh, well, yeah. What are you doing with a conservative? Yeah. And I remember one time, I think we were married at this point, there was a brunch for my psychoanalytic colleagues, and somebody said to me, in your hearing, uh, how can you be with a crypto-Nazi or something? something the, the words crypto-Nazi were spoken, and I was outraged. Yeah, I remember that, and it was uh, it was interesting. Your reaction was different from mine. I I let it roll off my back because I'd heard a lot of that crap before, but uh, to you, it it seemed very new and, and very shocking. It was offensive, and really, uh, that that was a revelation to me. And how virtually everyone that I knew, all of whom were liberal, pretty much, would say to me, "Well, how can you be with him? How can you stand somebody who doesn't agree with you to this degree?" And one of the things that was very striking to me is that one of the people, uh, when I had this terrifying leukemia when I was in the hospital and I had to go for treatment for a year, our next-door neighbor, in fact, who's, I think she's to the right of you. Well, she's a National Review reader, yes. long-time National Review reader. Yes, but she's a devout Catholic. Yes. And I don't, I'm sure that there's not one political opinion that we had in common, but she wanted to go with me to the hospital every day. And that really said something. It said to me, that's what really counts. Mm -hmm. I didn't care what she thought, uh, but in the things that really mattered, she came through. And in the day she didn't go to the hospital, she, she put a note under the door to encourage me. So right. It's you know, the and, hospital test. Yes. She passed the hospital well, test. Well, that's, that's a subset of, of, of what you and I call the chemotherapy test, right. which is, does this person, whatever their politics is, do they stand next to your bedside when you're going through chemotherapy and help you get through it? If they do, 
Their politics is good. If they don't, the hell with them. <laughs> right. So, so that's one of the things that, I, that I've really learned. What do you think was our worst fight? Do you remember? It must have been about abortion. Undoubtedly. And that's, that's just an irreconcilable, irreconcilable issue. I think we've figured out, this took a long time to figure out, but I think we figured out how to deal with it, which is to not deal with it, basically. Right. For this issue, we avoid. Um, for other issues, uh, we can talk about them in a kind of um, sportscaster way. You know, what'd you think uh, of that like, play? <laughs> yeah, 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 your side really uh, scored an own goal on that one, or you know, my side didn't do so well. That that kind of thing, uh, and that's that's a way to both talk about them without, you know, getting in the getting in the trenches. Do you think the way we've disagreed has changed over time? Have we honed it at all? Well, yes, I think we uh, we had to learn. I think at first we did argue about things head-to-head. Uh, -head. Probably me more than you. Well, uh, maybe. And again, simply because I'd, I'd had a college experience in, in a college which was overwhelmingly liberal. So, uh, you know, I knew how to, how to get by. I knew how to pick my battles and so on. And, you know, you didn't have that experience. So maybe maybe you were more out there. But we were both more out there. And then... You know, we saw over time that this is um, this is wearying. Uh, it's uh, ineffectual. It doesn't accomplish a thing. But you also change your. F I mean, look. Am I horrified that that you don't support women's right to choose? Yes, but no, no, I'm not even horrified anymore. I accept it goes along with an, with a lot of other things that you feel, and it doesn't. The point is that it doesn't feel less about you. It doesn't. At this point, I don't think it ever did really. I, I, at first, I could, I had to think, how could somebody whom I love and esteem disagree so radically with something that I hold dear? And then later, it just didn't seem to matter as much. I was wondering, have you ever changed any opinion of yours, even the tiniest bit, because of me? No, <laughs> not the tiniest bit. Uh, I, I was gonna, I was gonna time how long it would take. <laughs> <laughs> to come out with that answer. Well, now have, that you ask, no. <laughs> but I have to say, I haven't changed an opinion, of course, but I've changed an understanding of of people who disagree as radically as you. I can see that there could be a decent moral reason to explain several of these things. Well, you know, there, there again, one um, factor for me, uh, working for National Review, Many of the founders of that magazine, and I, I knew some of them when they were old men, had been communists in their youth or very radical people. And then they'd, they'd change their minds, obviously. But they, when, when they were communists, it wasn't because they were stupid or venal or they were taking gold from Moscow. I mean, they, they made... They believed they, in it morally well, they and made ethically. That, yeah. they made that choice. They thought yeah. history was in a certain kind of crisis and this was the way out of it. And then they realized, well, no, this is a way into horrors unimaginable. But, but their first uh, decision, although wrong, was not, uh, you know, you couldn't couldn't absolutely dismiss them for having made it. So, so I already had in my mm -hmm. head that as a, a framework for understanding people and their motives. And obviously, most most Americans are not even 
um, that far away. I mean, they're not uh, ex-Nazis or ex-communists. So they're in a, a, a very yeah. large, but still a kind of a middle in terms of the extremes that are conceivable. Have you changed in any way your opinions of liberals because of me? Um, well, no, or or hardly at all, because as I said, I, I knew a lot of them uh, in my teenage years. Uh, when I was at college, I, I dated a couple of mm. them. So uh, I've had that experience. I had that experience already. Obviously, I'd never married right, So it wasn't a revelation you're, to you. Right, exactly. You're, you're the only uh, person I've married. You're the <laughs> only person I've, I've so, spent. As far as I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that we're on air. No, uh, obviously, you know, you are my future for all the future that I have, which is a huge difference. But I had had that experience of intimate contact uh, with the other side. Mm-hmm. We'll be back after this. Do you have the same kind of feeling that I do, that now that Trump is elected, we can talk in a way that, uninhibitedly, in a certain way? Well, you know, we had that a little bit. The only person we've ever both voted for was uh, Mayor Giuliani. And again, for, for as somewhat mayor. as mayor, well, yes, as mayor, but and for somewhat different reasons. But it was it was a more local thing. It was a sense that New York uh, had to take a different turn, and this guy maybe could could provide it, as I believe he did. I think that was my only Republican vote in my entire life. Well, and the, and the thing with him is that he's this odd. He was this odd mixture of. Uh, extremely conservative on some things and right, extremely and liberal, liberal yeah. on other things. So, so you could always um, feel good about that. Well, I really, I really have enjoyed. It's the only thing about the Trump administration that I really can wholeheartedly say has been satisfying to me is to be able to talk to you, to hear your analysis of it, um, to laugh about it together, to be outraged together. It is it is a nice feeling. I mean, I don't think it's the thing to die for or the, the criterion that you should marry or not marry somebody, but when you've had the other your whole life, it is a pleasure you know, that, that, I, that I am enjoying. Gee, um, I, don't, I don't have any nice feelings about these years. <laughs> no, I don't have any nice feelings about the years, but I have, it's a feeling of solidarity and to be able to tap into your moral passion in a way uh, completely unambivalently, I would say. And that's a wonderful thing. And I have one final question for you, Mr. Okay. Perkins. Based on our experience over all these years, what advice would you give to another mixed political couple about how to handle discussions of the issues that divide them? Well, sometimes don't discuss. Uh, when you do discuss, never raise your voice. Um, Never misplace your sense of humor. <laughs> I'm just thinking if of you have a- one. Adding, adding something that, <laughs> that you left out in our, in our worst fight. Never say, if you march, I'll march. <laughs> or, or never. At, at that time, I still did my, my one time in my whole life, and I'm telling all my readers and all my listeners not to do, I did an actual article thrust which means that you take an article from your side that gives your point of view and you essentially stick it in the face of the person that you know doesn't agree with you. It says, look at this. Doesn't know. that always work, right? <laughs> it it, it absolutely always works. So, so I did it once, 
And I have to say, in my own behalf, I learned from it. Mm -hmm. We were both miserable afterwards. It was the Webster decision. I don't even remember when this happened. I'm sure you do, Rick. I don't. Um, there was there was a headline in the New York Times <clears throat> on the front page, and it uh, and I don't even remember the specifics of the decision, except it was an enormous curtailing of, of access to abortion. It was a th that's what I remember. And I looked at this, and I knew what it meant. I, I really knew that the that this was going to be the beginning of really a, a serious limitation uh, of what I consider fundamental freedom. And I said out loud, this is terrible. Uh, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I may have to protest in some way or other. And I'm not the protest, you know, the marching type. And then you said, if you march, I march. And I was really upset. Well, that's right. I thought that was only fair. I mean, it, that was it parody. is. It was absolutely fair. Um, I mean, I don't even think I would have marched. It was. It was more that... I was just so devastated by it, and I and I should not have said anything at all, you know. And I learned from that that there are an awful lot of people in the world that I can talk about this with. You don't have to be one of them. Mm -hmm. You know, I have plenty of friends, and actually, pretty much everybody else that I'm close with agrees with me. So there's where I go. But I remember the the pain of that. For both of us, the well, tension and the pain of it. You know, and one thing was, it was right in the moment. There was the the newspaper. There it was, yeah. immediately right there. So it was the immediate reaction. So you were asking, yeah. well, how, or how would I advise people to conduct fights? Right. One thing is to always take a beat. I mean, yes. don't immediately react to what you see on your on your Twitter feed or what comes up on and actually, whatever media you th follow. That comment really holds for both of us. I should never have said what I said, and you should never have answered it the way you did. No. And if we had both thought for five minutes at the time, we couldn't and didn't. But I think what was really important is that we learned from that. I saw how, how miserable I felt and how miserable you felt, and that was that. Unless it's Thomas Paine's American Crisis, it's probably not going to persuade. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's absolutely right. As our finale today, and the finale for this season of I Love You But I Hate Your Politics, Rick and I would like to sing you the madrigal that was performed at our wedding in 1980 by members of the Renaissance Street Singers of New York, the group where we met. It's called Four Arms, Two Necks, One Wreathing, and it was written in 1608 by the English composer Thomas Wilkes. Our voices are a bit more, shall we say, mature than they were when we met and first sang together in 1977, but the sentiments haven't changed. Making beautiful music together does not depend on political harmony. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. Four arms, two necks, one breathing, two pair of lips, one breathing. Fa la 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 la, fa la 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 la, fa la 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 la. Two 
Words that multiply, sighs interchangeably. I want to thank everyone for listening to this first season of I Love You But I Hate Your Politics. I hope it's been helpful in your understanding and maybe even improving your communication about politics with people you love. We all need to desperately. If you can do this, it can also expand into other areas of your life. Speak to you soon, and please write to us at podcasts at macmillan.com. If you have friends whose political fights are tearing them apart, do them a favor and tell them about I Love You But I Hate Your Politics podcast. Listening to it could save their relationships. And please let other people know about us, too. If you have more thoughts about the show that you'd like to share or have a political disagreement of your own you'd like to talk about, email us at podcasts at macmillan.com. I Love You But I Hate Your Politics is produced by Alexander Abnos with help from Katie Ferguson and Becky Celestina. <laughs>